we have to reset because the first thing we must settle in our minds, no man knows the day or the hour. There's all kinds of people on the internet making predictions about when Jesus is going to come and how it's, he's going to happen on these days and, and it's going to be in these threats. Just Let's just reset that. The disciples asked Jesus, they asked him, when are you coming back? He says, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. He says, he says my Father has maintained when that's going to happen for himself. So God doesn't want us to concentrate on the date or the time that it will happen, but he wants us more to focus on being prepared for when it actually happens. Senior Pastor George Martin Jr. explains in the final part of the sermon series. Follow along in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. This week we're going to be concluding our sermon series that we've been in all month long entitled Jesus, God's Invitation to the World. And we worked the entire month to help establish the sense that when Jesus was sent into the world, it was God's invitation to mankind to do one thing, and that was be reconciled back to me. We understand that when we go back to the Garden of Eden, that man existed in, its, in our original state before the fall. We existed in such communion with the Lord that he walked among his people and literally would call Adam by name, and they could hear his voice. But after the fall, there was a breach, and there was, there's been a divide between God and man. So Jesus came to bring that breach to an end, to bring reconciliation and to cause mankind to come back into a place of union and fellowship with God that, are, that there's no longer a division. So when Jesus came, it's God's invitation to the world saying, be reconciled back to me. So when Jesus came and said, for God so loved the world, he gave me his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him, in me, should not perish but have everlasting life. So when Jesus comes, he's essentially coming as God saying, if you understand what I am doing through my son, then you can be reconciled back to me. So Jesus, God's invitation to the world. So we're going we're gonna to conclude the series with this title, The Return of the Great King. Last week, we took time to establish the fact that Jesus was a king like no other king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that, that he came, he did things that kings had desired to accomplish but never were successful in doing, and yet he did what they were desiring to do and exceeded it many times over. So when Jesus rose from the grave, he rose as the conquering king. We talked about last week how he rode into Jerusalem with this showdown with death, hell, and the grave. He rode in as a humble king on a donkey. However, after getting there and becoming victorious through his obedience to the plan that the father had assigned to him, he was the conquering king. His conquest was, as I said, death, hell, and the grave. But it was monumental, and it stands even today. Do you realize that Jesus 
And what he did is so important to all of mankind, even those who do not believe, because history now looks back to Mark either before he died and what has happened after he died. But the key in him dying was that he rose and he rose having conquered and accomplished all that the father intended. He had accomplished the mortality, the immortality rather, that many kings before him had desired to do. Had worked very diligently during their time of life trying to establish something that would be lasting. Thus, because of what Jesus had done, his disciples were very eager to ask a question that they ask in verse 6 of this, eight, this, this first chapter. They asked him, Lord, will you now at this time restore Jerusalem? They said, wait a minute, Jesus, what you've done is amazing. And we've been hoping and waiting for somebody to come and restore Jerusalem back to its grandeur and to that state that we all have desired. Because they thought, wait a second. This guy is like no other. And if anyone can do it, he can do it. Unfortunately, the meaning of him having told them previously a few weeks earlier that he was getting ready to go away to prepare a place for them had completely escaped them. Because in his rising, they thought he was going to now live out the rest of his life reigning and they would be a part of that. So when he told them, let not your heart be troubled. I'm going to a way to prepare a place. I will come again. It had totally escaped them. Until shortly after their question, he ascends into heaven. So they've asked him, are you getting ready to restore Israel or restore Jerusalem? And while they're still curious, the Bible says that he starts to ascend into the heavens. And a cloud engulfs him. And he goes, and while they're still watching and standing and looking, two angels say, men of Galilee, why are you watching and looking into the heavens? Because this same Jesus, who just ascended, will one day descend. And the promise he made to you, he will fulfill. And since that day, every born-again believer and follower of Jesus Christ have lived in light of that wondrous, glorious day when he comes back. The songwriter wrote, I can only imagine what it would be like. Because here's the thing that has been lost on many of us is that we are charged with holding fast that anticipation and that expectation. Because here's what has happened. As we have become so consumed with living, we've forgotten that we're living to live again. One of the most prevalent messages that's circling the internet 
is this idea of when we're dead, we're done. In many ways, it is actually some of the foundational ideology that has established the moniker that we all hear, I'm living my because the reality of there not being anything to come says I better get it all in now. But let me just say this to you. If you're living your best life now, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. If you're living your best life now, because he said, I come to give you life and more abundantly. That if all, if the best you have to live now, praying for you. Praying that one day you come to the knowledge of the truth and realize that this earth is not our home. We are living as pilgrims and strangers. Do we need a place to stay? Absolutely. Can it be nice? Absolutely. Do we need a place, something to drive? Absolutely. Can it be nice? Absolutely. But we must understand that it is all rented equipment. See, here's how this works. See, when you go, uh, we rented, we had a, someone to rear in us recently, and we had a rental car, and it was a minivan. And, and man, I tell you, when we were, we were buying vehicles, I just didn't see myself as a minivan guy, you know, so we didn't. <laughs> We were, we were contemplating, brother, we were, brother Randy, we were, we were contemplating a vehicle. And so I, we had looked at some minivans. I'm sitting at the, at the light. And, and so there was a brother that was trying to catch the light before the yellow light changed. And he was in a minivan. He was sweating. And, and it looked like he was trapped in a bubble. And I was like, oh, we can't buy no minivan. So... We rent this minivan, and it's nice. It's got bells and whistles, heated seats, and you press the button, the window, the doors, side doors open, and the, the, do, the windows on the door slid down, and the children were like, Daddy, we need to get one of these. <laughs> and I kind of started selling into it, too. It was new, you know, ours is a few years older, and it had that new car smell, and I'm like, boy, you know, it's getting pretty good gas mileage, and I'm like, boy, this is all right. But then as they kept campaigning, I said, so guys, you do understand. This is just a rental. We all enjoy it. And I'm kind of starting to love it. But I also recognize one day I got to let it go. And see, the reality of living with this anticipation of his return, we live with that expectation that, yeah, I got all my stuff. But one day, I got to release it in the earth because I've got a new home. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Why would you hold on to stuff in a world where the value is uncertain? Here's how this works. Uh, in this world we live in, the things that we, the materials we use to make jewelry they build streets with. Okay, you got gold on today. The Bible says that they make, they've made, God, Jesus, when he prepared a place, he, he, he made streets with gold. What kind of place uses gold to walk on? 
You don't, got, you don't have it yet. Anybody here with an asphalt ring? Anybody got some concrete jewelry on? Any concrete on in here? <laughs> Represent concrete. <laughs> Nobody here spends any time thinking about concrete. Yeah. It's a throwaway. If we use it, we tear it up and put some more down. But in this place, he's prepared. Gold who ha that has value here is on the streets. Okay, those, ho those home builders, you go out to the site and you see them, they're building and constructing your home. And the stuff that they put in the ground, you don't care nothing about it. You don't, you don't care how they laid the foot, as long as the footing is laid right. You don't care what they use or what it looked like. But it says the things, the, 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 the jewelry that we have, we put stones in. The foundations in this place is made out of those stones. So we have to recognize we live in anticipation of something that Jesus said. In John chapter 14 and 3, he says, I go and prepare a place for you. And I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. So when the songwriter is saying, I can only imagine, he's really capturing the sense that we all should live with this imagination. What is it going to be like? No, I know, I know, I know. We've got, we, uh, the songwriters have shaped our theology. We talk about two wings to veil my face. I'm going to have two wings, two wings. Do you understand that is not biblical? You're, he, hello, you're not going to get wings. You're not getting wings. You want me veiling your face? You want me fly away? No. No, there, Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that all beings have their own flesh. There's celestial and terrestrial, and then there's us. We are not going to become angels. We're not going to become angels. We will have a new body, a new human body that will be immortal. He says this mortal must put on immortality. But he does not, when he says we'll be changed in a moment in a twinkling, he's not changing into angels. We're changing from a body that dies to one that will never die again. I got off track. I'm sorry. I didn't plan on all that. That was just because I know we, we you start talking about heaven. We got all kind of ideas, you know, walk around heaven all day. Yeah, that, that's that sounds logical. You will have a body. But the reality here is we want to make sure that we live with this anticipation that our imagination does not then shape this our theology. Because the songwriter says, I don't know, will I dance for you, Jesus? Will I, and all, will I be still? Will I stand in your presence until my knees will I fall? Will I shout hallelujah? Will I be able to say anything at all? 
Because the question is, we don't know if hallelujah will be the highest praise in heaven for us. Because here's what John says. John says, behold, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when we see him, we will be as he is. So when we think about living with this sense of promise, it guides us to our first point for the day. And that is, the king is true to his word. See, everything that Jesus did, he was establishing himself to be trustworthy. Understand this, as he's teaching, he would do miracles to confirm his teaching. He would feed, he fed the 5,000 after they had spent all day listening to him teach. He was doing these things to confirm so that it would be no doubt, there would be no doubt that what he was saying could not be trusted. In, in, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, here's what it says. Jesus is talking to the disciples. He says, heaven and earth will pass away. Heaven and earth. He's not talking about the, the third heaven. He's talking about the heavens above us and the earth will pass away. He says, but my word by no means will ever pass away. So he's trustworthy. So if we understand he's trustworthy, then we see Jesus as this. We see him as this solid rock of trust. You talk about a rock, it's solid. Uh, when building, you want to get down to solid ground. If the ground's not solid, then you, you lay a foundation and then build on that. Jesus is a solid rock of trust. The psalmist said it this way in Psalm 62, verse 7 and 8. He says this. He says, in God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength. And my refuge is in God. Trust in him. Here it is at all times. You people pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. So we understand that he's this rock of trust. Pew Research Center reported in an article July 22nd, which is my birthday, 2019, through an article, <laughs> through, through an article entitled Trust and Distrust in America. And there are some, some statistics I want you to see because there is a trust issue that we have in society and part of that is affecting our confidence in God. Here's what it said. It said 71% of people that they uh, surveyed, they felt that interpersonal confidence has worsened in the last 20 years. The in confidence in other people, interpersonal confidence and trust is worsened, has worsened. 71% of the people said that. 49% of the people said that, that the people around them are not reliable. Almost half of the people surveyed said, listen, 
I can't trust these folks. About two-thirds, or three-fourths, rather, of the Americans, about 79% said that they think that fellow citizens have too little confidence in one another. So when we talk about trusting God, we understand that the environment and culture we're in is one of distrust rather than trust. So it becomes more and more important for us to build our confidence in God's word and the promises he made through his word. But all of those promises rest upon my confidence that he died and he rose. Because in placing my confidence in him, I understand that he did what he said he was going to do. Because one of the most famous scriptures on Resurrection Sunday is found in Matthew 28 and 6. And here's what it said. He is not here, for he is risen. And here it is, as he said. Just the, the Lord had for the angel to be there to affirm that you can trust what Jesus says because he said he was going to die, but he also said he was going to rise, and he has risen just like he said. That same confidence lies in his promise to go and come again. So when we look here in Acts chapter 1 and verse 11, he says, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into the heavens? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come again in like manner as you just saw. That leads me to point number two. Our confidence in the hope of his return, this hope of his return, because if he's trustworthy, if he rolls just like he said, he will come back just like he said. But I want to ask this question, and I want you to think about it. What is the special character of biblical hope? What is the special characteristic of biblical hope. Because here's what biblical hope isn't. It's not finger crossing. It's not rabbit foot rubbing. It's not lucky charm keeping. Here's what it is. It is a confident expectation, trusting in the one who has created the expectation. See, we get frustrated when, with others, oftentimes in relationships, specifically in marriages, we have expectations that are not met, so we become frustrated. We have these breaches and we have these struggles because our expectations are not met. Unmet expectations cause us to be concerned. The reality is that then we apply that to how we understand God. Let's take it a step further. Many of us, some of us, 
have had fathers who have not been very reliable. So when we talk about God as father, that doesn't necessarily register with us immediately. It takes us some time to understand the father we know and the father that we're getting to know. Because the character of the two are not the same. So when we look here, we see this confidence. So biblical hope is our confident expectation and trusting in the one who's created the expectation. By Jesus making the promise, it creates the expectation. And that expectation then drives us to hope. Here's how Hebrews calls it. In Hebrews 6 and 11, it says, it's a full assurance of hope. A full assurance of hope that the one who made the promise can fulfill. Here's an observation that I want to just make. That if we are not careful, it's possible to get so bound up in our world that builds and embraces the ideology that it doesn't need or require a savior that we'll no longer place our hope in this great return. See, society works every day to diminish the message that that the world needs saving and that Jesus was that one who came to save it. Do you understand that in order to be saved, you you must recognize that you need saving? All right? If you... Oftentimes, we don't recognize when we're, we're drowning in sin. So we're, we're drowning in sin, and we don't know it because it feels good, right? However, we're drowning. It's not until someone tells me that thing that feels good is actually going to end in death. And he said, oh, Lord, save me. So the idea that we don't need a savior is becoming more prevalent as atheism is on the rise. And I want to caution you against something. If I were to ask you the question, what is the fastest growing population of atheists, what would you say? Young adults and teenagers. It is, a, it is a population that is growing faster than any other. So a world that is building an idea that we don't need a savior then can easily drift away from this expectation that the savior is coming back. So Pastor Martin, what do we need to do? That leads me to point number three. We need to reset our hope. Things get off track. You, I don't know if they still have this anymore, but there used to always be a reset button on things. The, the, um, uh, the food grinder in the sink, what is it called? The garbage disposal. I described it. You know what I was talking about. I said, the garbage disposal. It wasn't working. So we called in. They said, hey, um, is there anything stuck in his eye? I don't know. I mean, it's hard, you know, it's blades. You're sticking your hand down there. They said, feel around in there. Well, it's blades. I mean, <laughs> it cuts. So, I mean, it's just not turning. 
So after messing around with it, I, I, got, I went to the, the breaker box and even got my screwdriver out. I was like, oh, let me see what I can. Finally, the lady said, have you reset it? I said, oh, there's a reset? He said, reach underneath there and there should be a button. Just press it. Press it. It starts working again. So we have to reset our hope. There's a few things that I want to share, then I'll close as a part of resetting. And what I mean by resetting our hope is a renewing of our watchfulness. Can you say that with me? A renewing of our watchfulness. Because here's what Luke chapter 24 verse 50 through 53 says. I'm going to read this for you. You can write it down. You don't have to turn it. I just want to read it for you. But here it is. He says, and now, and he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands, and he blessed them. Now, it came to pass while he blessed them that he was, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they, here it is, and they worshiped him. This idea that he went away, move them to a sense of worship. Okay, you missed it. The idea that this Jesus, they just watched him ascend up into heaven. They'd watch him walk on water. They'd watch him heal the sick. They'd watch him raise the dead. They'd watch him do all these miracles. But then when they saw him ascending to heaven, they worshiped him. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. So the first thing we have to see, the idea of Jesus' return should bring a great sense of joy and a great sense of submitted service to him. Because that worship places worth on something. He is worthy. Verse 53 says, and we're continually in the temple praising and blessing God. They were so excited because he said, I'm, come, I'm going, but I'm coming back. And as they were living with that expectation, they worshiped, they had great joy, and they continued with his people in the temple. So first thing, in terms of resetting, we have to reset because the first thing we must settle in our minds, no man knows the day or the hour. There's all kinds of people on the Internet making predictions about when Jesus is going to come and how he's going to happen on these days and, and it's going to be in these three. Just Let's just reset that. The disciples asked Jesus. They asked him, when are you coming back? He says, I don't know. If you slide up to verse number seven, look at this, this first chapter, verse seven. Look what it says. They said, and he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the father has put in his own authority. He says, he says my father has maintained when that's going to happen for himself. So let's reset. I know you've been watching that guy on YouTube, and he's been telling you that, that this is happening on this day and time. It's going to be, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to give you a specific day to try to be slick and give you a rain. It's going to be within, between August and... Uh, 
No man knows the day or the hour. Amen? The next thing. Well, let's just get scripture. Matthew 24, verse 36 and 35, it said, 37 rather. But of that day and hour, this is Jesus talking, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. We're going to deal with that next month in our next month series, as in the days of Noah. We're going to talk about what Jesus said here, as in the days of Noah. But he says, no man knows the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven. They got to get ready for it, but they don't know. It's not until he said, okay, now's the time that they'll get ready because the Bible speaks of a shout of the archangel and the trumpet sounding. So heaven knows that it's going to happen. It just doesn't know when. And if heaven doesn't know, surely your favorite. Internet pastor, prophet, teacher. He doesn't know either. The next thing, if we're going to reset our hope, we have to then understand that it's going to come as a thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians, write this down, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. It says, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord is, comes, it comes as a thief in the night. Now, we all know that, that, that the thief, you don't know when he's coming, right? He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't just throw it open. You know that it, there's possibilities that he most likely comes at night, uh, when he, maybe when nobody's home and things of that nature, but you don't know when he's coming, so he says, the day of the Lord is coming just like that. You, don't, you won't know. You know there's a possibility, but you don't, know, you don't know exactly when. Here's one more. We should live in anticipation of that return. Matthew chapter 24, verse 42 says, Watch, therefore, for you don't know what the hour of the Lord, that your Lord will return. And when we talk about watchfulness, we're not talking about the things that we do. You look at, boy, things are just getting bad around here. Watchfulness is not just recounting what's going on. It's recognizing what it all means. Because if you just look around and see all of the things in the world that are bad, that only brings depression. Yeah, right? Right? But if you look around in the world and see all that's going on and recognize that it's evidence of a return, it brings hope. Okay. Yes. Here's what Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 says. If you then were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your affections upon things above, not on things of the earth. Now, this is important. Not that you're not a functional, active, and engaged citizen of earth. We should all be responsible in our citizenship in the earth. But we should be more aware of our heavenly citizenship. Here's how this works. There was a gentleman that used to, he was a, he was a, um, uh, 
a tailor that we used to go to. His name was actually Christ. I never could get that out. I just called him Chris. <laughs> His name was Christ. Is it just, just hey, Chris? He was Greek, had a very thick, he said, I Greek. I Greek. He had, he had pictures and maps of Greece on his wall. So one day while I was waiting for him to finish a suit for me, I began to talk to him and I found out that Chris was 75 years old. He had only lived three of those 75 years in Greece. But he said, I Greek. Because Greece was his homeland. Okay? So it didn't matter that he had spent so much time in the United States. He always lived knowing where his homeland is. What are you saying, Pastor Martin? Well, here's the thing. Jesus said to Nicodemus, he says, marvel not that I say you must be born again. He said, that which is born of flesh is flesh. But that which is born of the Spirit, the Spirit, he said, marvel not, you must be born again. Why did Jesus say that we need to be born again? Because we need to be born of heaven in order to be a citizen of heaven. So even though we haven't haven't lived there yet, just like Chris, we must live every day saying, I'm heaven. I'm of heaven. Because that's my homeland. Let me say it this way. It's probably fair to assume that after 2,000 years waiting for what seemed to be imminent, because we must reconcile the fact that when Jesus said he's coming back, those men and women standing there did not think they were, he was talking about more than 2,000 years later. They believed it was imminent, that soon he would go and come. So it's, 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 it's fair to assume that many have set aside this anticipation simply because as we go about everyday life, we can just begin to come, become so consumed with raising families, working to provide shelter and food, pursuing pleasures and living our best life. <laughs> and in many cases being enslaved to a culture that places achievement and success above everything else. That is easy that we can set aside this sense that we should live in, here's what I call, an, in tiptoe anticipation, waiting for the day that he returns. Here's what Jesus warns to not do that. Luke chapter 21, verse 34 I want you to turn there if you would. Luke chapter 21, verse 34. I'm almost done. Luke 21, 34. I'm going to begin reading. I hear you turning, uh, but, but once you get there, you'll see because we'll, we'll work through this. But he says, but take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life and that day comes on you unexpectedly. Jesus warns them, he says, be careful that that day may catch you unaware. The word carousing there, it's translated from 
a Greek word that says that it's an activity of drinking alcohol and enjoying oneself other in a noisy, loud, or lively situation. Depending on the translation you're using, it may say uh, suffering or, or the, 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 the dis, dispensation, dis, dissipation, I should say. So when you think about those two words, dissipation and suffering, what does that mean? Think about the days that we live in. Jesus warns that, that the day could catch us with carousing and drinking. Do you realize today in our society, you can be intoxicated in so many ways that you can't even keep up? Even soda producers are now making what's called hard soda. You know what hard soda is? Have intoxicants in it. So why is Jesus in relationship to the day of his return, talking about drinking and drunkenness. Because he was actually speaking prophetically. And understand that when Jesus is speaking here, prophecy is not him proclaiming that it has to be. He's foretelling of what will be. So he says, don't be careful. Don't get so caught up. He would say, well, Pastor, I, I, I gave that up. But he also says, the cares of this life. Getting so caught up with just living and doing your thing that you forget that we're supposed to live yeah. in anticipation of that great day. So I end by saying it this way. In Mark chapter 13, verse 37, here's what Jesus said. He says, and what I say to you I say to all, watch. Don't lose sight of the fact. Don't lose sight of the fact. Y'all can perk up. You know, your mind will run through your whole wine cavity like, a, I got some of that hard soda. I got some of that hard soda in my refrigerator right now. I got one chilling right now. But Jesus says, don't get so caught up in those things that you forget that we're living to live again. That wraps up another awesome word. If you're in need of prayer, counsel, or if we can assist in any way, please don't hesitate to ask. If you would like to join, contact us or receive these and other sermon notes, visit us at amitybc.org. Until next week, be blessed.